The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University, Chicago, is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for spring 2024 include the annual Newman Lecture, given by political scientist Jason Blakely, who will discuss his conversion experience, a celebration of the great Catholic jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams in a series of events featuring Deanna Witkowski, and the annual Cardinal Bernadine Common Cause Lecture, featuring Cardinal Christophe Pierre, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy New Year, Ashley. Happy New Year, Zach. Any resolutions you got? I am writing, I just, I made it very simple. I'm writing like a couple sentences of just like things at the end of the day that I remember, good or bad, just things that I, you know, can look back at and feel like I'm not letting my life slip by. Notes app or... No, a literal in a, in a real, journal. Real journal. You got yep. one of those five-year ones? Mm, nope. It's no, one I had lying. I, I'm not making the mistake of buying a journal thinking it'll change my life. I found one in my drawer that's been sitting there forever, and I was okay. like, all right. So I'm up to I'm up to day uh, day ten. Kept it up so far. Nice. <laughs> what about you? I am uh, doing dry January. Uh, really? Dry martinis. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was about to January. say, I, I see your drink. Oh, right yeah, yeah. There. No, no, no. No, not like the one everyone else is doing. I'm trying to get okay. in martinis in 2024. Okay. So. All right. Gin, I assume? Of course. I said Thank martinis. You. Okay. Yeah. So, All right. Gin. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but no, I, I have a trying to also like eat a little healthier workout, but not get too crazy because Lent's around the corner. So, yeah. I'm going to have to just like put on a real sacrifice at that point. So, um, really excited to be doing the podcast again in 2024, our seventh year, eighth seventh year. Seventh year. Yeah, we started, it's our eighth year. We've done it for seven, right? Yeah. Started in 2017. We're almost there. We have a uh, great spring coming up. So make sure you actually stick around this episode for parish announcements because we're going to be announcing, uh, we're going all over the country this spring. So we're going to announce some dates and locations later on in the podcast. So stick around. But, But first, we've got to introduce our guest and our drink this week. Yeah. So this week we are talking to John Martins. He's a professor of theology and director of the Center for Christian Engagement at St. Mark's College at the University of British Columbia. Uh, And he's also a a longtime friend of America. Way back in 2013, when I started here, he was our word columnist. So he did uh, the weekly uh, uh, breakdown of the gospel and readings for that Sunday. Yeah, so he has a more recent piece uh, in America about Pope Francis, um, mercy, and some of the Bible passages that have been foundational to Francis's papacy. That was really popular on America's site, so we decided to bring John on to dig into that. Before we get into that, want to summarize two of the gospel passages that we get into with John. Yeah, so first we talk about the calling of Matthew. So this is a gospel scene made famous by the Caravaggio painting, The Calling of Matthew, where Jesus is pointing at Matthew. He seems to be in a bar playing, maybe playing some dice or cards and looking a little surprised that Jesus is calling him to be a disciple because he is a tax collector. That's right. And then the second parable we get into, I, I think this needs less of, less context, but we talk about the Good Samaritans. So that's another one that's been foundational to Francis's papacy. And John recommended a really 
really interesting drink for us. Yes. So it's called the Newfangled, which I love. It's a twist on the old fashioned. Uh, and, and what's in this sack? You were the bartender yeah, this week. Essentially, we're doing an old fashioned. So you've got um, your whiskey, your a little bit of sugar, your bitters. Um, but we're adding some Fernet Branca to this, which is a type of Amaro, I believe. So it adds this like herbaceous flavor to the old fashioned. So just a little bit. It's nice. So. All right. Cheers. Hey, to 2024. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So a senior Vatican official uh, came out in favor of ending mandatory priestly celibacy. So in favor of priests being able to get married. Yeah. So Archbishop Charles Tricluna, uh, he's the Archbishop of Malta, and he's a um, senior official in the dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. So the, the Doctrine Office, the one that's kind of in charge of rules. And he said, you know, just if it was up to him, he wasn't making an official announcement about where things were going uh, at the Vatican. But he said he would come out in favor of making this uh, not a requirement for Latin Rite priests. And, and he said he happens to know that priests all over the world, including in Malta, do engage in hidden long term relationships as a way of coping with and getting around the celibacy requirement. Yeah, sometimes physical, other times emotional. He, yeah. he meant that, you you know, they fall in love and sometimes this is a way of, of coping. Uh, this is pretty big news. Um, people obviously have been like talking about this and debating this for a long time. Uh, priests have been uh, celibate in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church for a little over a thousand years. So it is a pretty longstanding tradition, but it's um, there's some nuances here when talking about this that I think uh, make it a little bit more possible than changing other church teachings. Right. So celibacy is is a discipline as opposed to a doctrine or a dogma, going back to that great conversation we got to have with Rick Gillardi back in the fall. Um, so that means it's possible to change. It's similar. So like before Vatican II, you had to fast from midnight until you received the Eucharist. And then Paul VI was like, nah, it only has to be an hour. <laughs> and so that is a discipline that changed basically with, you know, a pronouncement by the Pope. Yeah. And I, important to point out here, I think that in Eastern rites in the Catholic Church, and really like every other rite except the Latin rite in the Catholic Church, we, we have married priests. Um, also, we have married priests in the Latin rite. We, there, we, we talked to one on this podcast, Father Josh Whitfield, who um, converted uh, from being an Anglican priest and he was allowed to keep uh, sort of transition his holy orders to Catholic while keeping his family. Um, so we've already got examples of this happening in the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church. Um, but it's it's surprising that it's it's come up a number of times in Francis's papacy um, as a possibility of changing. I think Francis has tossed out comments casually here and there. It was a big topic of discussion at the Amazon Synod where there's a massive priest shortage. Um, it didn't come up that much at the Synod on Synodality, which was kind of surprising because I think some people thought it would. Uh, I'm curious what you thought about this news and generally, like, whether we sh- is this something the church should go down? I don't feel that strongly. I think my concerns are less, like, theological and more prudential. Like, uh, one thing that Father Josh Wish- Whitfield said in our interview is just the the financials of this are tricky. Like our, our parish priests are supported by donations to the church. And if you have an entire family that you have to support by what people are giving to the church, I don't know if we can really afford that. So and I think one thing that's important is um, in so it, you mentioned the synod on synodality, where it wasn't a really big flashpoint, but it, it did end up in the um, final synthesis document after the October meeting, where they mentioned that it, it might be more appropriate in certain ecclesial and cultural con- contexts, uh, which I think is very true. Um, I think 
in the Amazon where people go months, if not years, without receiving the Eucharist because they don't have enough priests and you have men who are there and ready and willing to serve in that capacity, it makes a lot of sense. I certainly don't think it's going to solve um, the vocations crisis in the West. I think that's like a pious thing people say. I think it's ridiculous to think that there wouldn't be more I candidates th- that would want to. Uh, it's sort of, but I mean, people say this all the time. It's yeah. like, oh, well, you could do this, but it wouldn't solve the vocations mm-hmm. crisis. And I hear that all the time. And I don't know. I think, I don't think that's a reason against it. I just don't think it's a reason for it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe it should be. Maybe it should yeah. be a reason, right? Like, do we care more about access to the sacraments or celibacy for our priests is sort of mm-hmm. a, a question that it comes down to. Um, you know, we've already, as, as we mentioned, we already have this in the Catholic Church, um, and we've found a way to make it work in these other instances. There might be challenges, but none of them seem insurmountable. I also don't think that celibacy as a practice for priests would go away entirely. Um, you know, whether this is sort of an optional thing in parts of the world or um, it's more universal, I think religious order priests, so your Jesuits, your Franciscans, your Dominicans, would, I, I think, likely still have celibacy as part of that vocational route. So there would be this like both and that would, you know, you still be able to have in the Catholic Church that I think would be important. What's our next story, Ashley? So uh, another figure at the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith is back in the news, Cardinal Victor Fernandez, the the new head of the Doctrine Office appointed by Pope Francis, has come under some scrutiny for a book he wrote 25 years ago. He wrote it in Spanish, but the English title is Mystical Passion, Spirituality, and Sensuality. And so this is a book that he wrote, he says, because he had had conversations with young couples who were trying to understand the place of God in their relationship and including their sexual relationship. Relationships, So it connects the mystical experience of God with the sensual pleasure of uh, intercourse between men and women. Yeah, I think I, I, I've not read this book. It's in Spanish, but some the more salacious chapters have been translated into English. So you can look them up. We're not going to talk about them in too much detail here. Yeah, that's right. But I, I will say, like, they'll probably make you go, whoa. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I should be reading that at work. Uh, and it's kind of weird to hear it from a priest. It's kind of, yeah. And so I, I, I understand why people are a little worried. There's also this one chapter in particular where Fernandez is relaying this uh, account that a, a, a vision that a 16-year-old had, maybe not vision's the right word, but a meditation that's pretty explicit and sensual. And I, I'm personally super uncomfortable with like maybe even them having that conversation, like a priest and a 16-year-old girl talking about stuff at that level, in addition to him publishing that account, feels like really problematic. Talking about sex and spirituality in and of itself is- Not new for the Catholic Church. No, it's not a problem. I think people are still weirded out by it, particularly in the United States, where we, I think, tend to inherit some of our, our Puritan ancestors' apprehensions about this, you know, these commingling of these two things. But um, a lot of people have pointed to even recent popes that have tried to do this exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. So so John Allen and Crux made a comparison with Pope John Paul II's book. He wrote when he was also young, before he came became pope, he wrote a book called Love and Responsibility that uses similarly erotic language. I think people would say it's not as explicit as uh, Cardinal Fernandez's, and it's more aimed at guiding explicitly married couples in their relationships. But 
that said, it is it, it talks about sex in very plain language um, and connects it to God. Um, so that's not unheard of. Um, and then, of course, we have we have mystics in our tradition and artists in our tra- tradition that are not afraid to engage with the human body and human sexuality. Look, and there's like an entire I don't want to say like cottage industry, but there's a lot of people that go give a lot of talks about theology of the body, which is based on. John Paul II's Love and Responsibility book that you mentioned that is also explicit. So there are talks happening all around this country that do similar things That was not a part of my faith upbringing. Aren't those telling you not to have sex? (laughs) They are, but there is like, I mean, no, it's not not just telling you not to have sex. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's telling you not to have non-married sex, but there is like a, a, a lot of people that are very into this type of spirituality. Now, I will say like, Cardinal Fernandez is, you know, to his credit, he was asked about this and he said, this is not a book that he would have published today. And after it was published, he kind of quickly regretted it and stopped uh, any, a- more, reprints, any yeah. more reprints or anything yeah. like that. And this is, it doesn't come without context, right? This is coming on the heels of the uh, Pope Francis and the Stichastery um, coming out with the document on blessings for couples in irregular relationships. So same-sex couples, divorced, remarried couples that obviously has caused a lot of controversy and uh, someone, I would imagine, reacting to that news, decided to go digging in Cardinal Fernandez's past and leaked this to a lot of members of the press. Yeah, and I, I guess the if if that is the case, then well, we know that it was leaked to members of the press. Yes. We don't know okay. why the we don't know the motivation. The timing is suspicious. Uh, suspicious. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I think the idea would be, you know, show that this man seems to have a maybe potentially disordered relationship to sex, and that would in some way discredit this document um, on same-sex blessings. Yeah, and look, when we we know from the past that a lot of times where there's abusive situations in the church, these things are, you see spirituality and sexuality um, written about in such a way that's that's pretty uncomfortable. I think back to Jean Vanier, the founder of L'Arche, you know, what came out of those allegations was um, some things that also were like, made people uncomfortable yeah. and weird, and he was asked to stop doing that. Um, similar with Father Marco Repnik, yep. the disgraced Jesuit artist, uh, similar conversations with, with nuns in his community. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, like there is no allegation or a whiff of an allegation like that with Cardinal Fernando. So there's nothing nothing abusive going on uh, here. Uh, so want to make that crystal clear. But I, I think we should like be at least a little suspicious without resorting to outright prudishness when stuff like this comes out. Yeah. So if anything else does come out, we will be sure to tell you on the show. Now stick around for our conversation about Pope Francis, mercy, and the Bible with John Martins. Joining us from Vancouver is John Martins. John is a professor of theology and director of the Center for Christian Engagement at St. Mark's College at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to Jesuitical, John. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, been, you, you have this great piece in America, um, which is great to have you back in our pages. You are our 
scripture columnists for the first couple of years I was at America, 13 to 16. Um, so it's a treat to have you back on top, talking about something that I think our audience is gonna gonna really love, even if not everybody in the church does, which is uh, <laughs> Pope Francis and his focus on mercy. But before we, we're gonna hopefully talk about that and maybe some Bible passages that have grounded Francis's papacy. Um, but before we get into that, you recently participated in a, a conference on Francis's legacy. I'm curious what your, your takeaway was from that or where you think his sort of legacy is as we're coming up on his 11th anniversary? Yeah, that's, that's a good good question. Um, the Center for Christian Engagement, which I direct, um, decided to do a 10th anniversary conference, and there were a lot of work, <laughs> it turns out. I was sort of done at the end of it, uh, but uh, it was a lot of fun, and we brought in folks from all over the United States, uh, Canada, and Asia and Africa as well, there really was a lot of sense that there, there was some energy in the church and people loved it. Our students loved it. And, and that was sort of the big surprise or like, if we didn't know we could do this kind of thing and, and sort of get together with colleagues. We had Emil Sakuda in, um, Argentinian theologian. Former guest of the podcast. Is that right? Yep, yeah, yep. we talked to her when we were in Rome. Yeah, friend of the pod. <laughs> Well, she's a delight, and she brought that energy to our conference as well. And I think the sense, too, that the church is much bigger than North America. And I think both in Canada and the United States, where I've lived a lot of my life as well, there's a sense the church is something that we do here in the U.S. and Canada or maybe Western Europe. And what I loved about having like sisters from Vietnam and priests from Africa is this is a big church. So this was a conference uh, based on Pope Francis. So I'm wondering, you're talking about this uh, energy that you felt there, but what does Pope Francis contribute to that? Where is it coming from in terms of, of what he's trying to do in the church? I mean, for me, it's it's a fairly simple thing. I think it's a focus on the gospel. Uh, I, I think, I, I mean, that's simple. and It's difficult in some ways, difficult to live out. But I really do think, and this emerged from the conference, was there is a simple gospel ethic of loving God and loving your neighbor, of getting to know people, of accompanying people, reaching out to them, uh, being with them. The, the movement being loving your neighbor and not judging your neighbor as the first step in the church's outreach. But th that's what I really think he, he brings. So in uh, this piece, you're, you're sort of revisiting something you'd written back in 2013. There was this, it, it was Pope Francis's like big first interview that we published yeah. in America um, called A Big Heart Open to God. And you were looking at specifically some of the Bible passages that yeah. he brought up. I'm curious, uh, before we get into some of these specific passages, yeah, um, yeah. How, how do you feel that the Bible has kind of guided Francis's pontificate throughout this decade? Obviously, the scripture, the Bible is going to be there for every pope. I mean, it's something that yeah, is just sort of built in, right? Yeah. It's, but I do it's, think most people don't think Pope Francis Bible scholar, right? That's yeah. true. Or they put this like dichotomy of like, oh, it's yeah. like he's more pastoral and that's right. like scripture scholarly, as Ashley said. Yeah. And, you know, I had one little advantage, and that is when I was in the Twin Cities, I got to know uh, a Jesuit, Jim Raddy. And Jim and I used to go out for lunch about once a month. And I'd known Jim for a few years, and Francis had been Pope for a couple of years. When Jim sort of drops this bombshell on me, he says, oh, I, I was in 
in school with um, Jose Maria Bergoglio in Argentina, like when we were studying to be Jesuits. And I was like, what? You didn't tell me that. Like you were like studied with him. You were in class with him. He said, yeah. And he was a great student, studied hard, worked hard. And so I do think that dichotomy, like he's pastoral, he's not a thinker, I think is a mistake. And I think from getting to know Jim and learning some of the (laughs) the study habits of the Pope, we make a a mistake. Um, But I think that with Benedict and with JP too, you had real academic popes. Um, and I think that's not him. I think that's not Francis. But that doesn't mean he's not a, you know, someone who's just sort of steeped in scripture and steeped in theology. And I think this comes out in how he behaves. And so I would say, I do think his model of imitation here is Jesus. You know, um, he's deeply grounded, that is Francis, in Scripture, and the way he behaves and treats people is where we see that emerge, even more than particular passages. This might be, like, totally off base, um, but I get the sense that he tends to be more, I don't want to say myopically focused, or at least he he most he cites most frequently the Gospels, it seems like, yes. to me. Yeah. And he's drawing less of a connection between the Old Testament or maybe some of the Pauline letters than yeah. um, your your typical, even priest might. I think he seems pretty yeah. laser focused on, on these four <laughs> Gospels talking about Jesus. You know, going back to that initial interview, which I did find exciting when it came out in 2013, and I still do today when I revisit it. I, I think it's programmatic. And I think you're right. I, I mean, I struggled at that time looking at that interview to say, where is the scripture? You know, I mean, obviously he cites a couple of passages, the call of Matthew, I think the Good Samaritan, although he doesn't cite it directly. And then Luke 24, the Emmaus passage. But I think you're right. It's not exactly present. It's certainly not up front. Do you do we lose something if we are only focused on the gospels, or is that a healthy corrective to maybe an overfocus on Paul and previous uh, uh, papacies? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't think of it as a loss so much as 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 kind of a laser focus, and and I'm, you might have used that language actually already. That laser focus. He's an interesting man in terms of how he how he does his job, right? Because we've had two very academic popes that preceded him. And I think that shaped the whole understanding of what is a papacy. And I do think that's part of why he's sort of upset people is it's like there are places though within the scripture and Paul being one of them where Paul will say, no, this is how you behave. This is how you behave. In this situation, this is what you do. And he really is focused more on that sort of encounter of Jesus with people in various places in the world. And I think that's how he's enacting his papacy. Let's uh, focus in on uh, some of these Bible passages that, that you looked at and that Francis has sort of used as um, the foundation of his papacy. Um, the first is the call of Matthew. So this is Matthew chapter nine. I'm wondering if, for those of us who haven't been able to go to San Luigi de Francesi and see the Caravaggio depicting this, could you uh, just briefly recount this scene from the gospels for us and, and what's happening? By the way, if you get a chance to go to the church and see that uh, that Caravaggio, it, it is it's so powerful. It's worth a little coin you got to put in to light it up. 
Um, I think that's that's right. That's so. right. It's worth a couple euros. <laughs> but it's pretty hidden. There's that's, not going to be a huge line. So no. worth doing. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, Jesus having dinner with tax collectors and sinners, and he's questioned about it. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. There's this pointing, right, of Jesus. And, and Caravaggio, of course, and I'm, I'm no art critic or art expert, but he uses dark and light in such incredible ways. And so you see the finger of Jesus pointing at Matthew, sort of lit. And he's the one who's being called... Um, you know, it, it's interesting that Jesus sort of stands in the darkness. Matthew's lit up. He's being pointed to, but he's also in the light being called by Jesus. And Francis saying, that's me. I, I'm the sinner. I'm the one who's being called and putting himself in that role. And I think putting all of us in that sense, not, not in terms of we're all unworthy, but in fact, the opposite, that no matter what our sins, no matter where we've stumbled, um, we are being called and we are loved. Yeah. I So I, I started at America that the week that that interview was published. So it was also very exciting to me. Um, yeah. And I remember there being just like, people loved that line. Like he, the first question is, who is Jorge Bergoglio? And he said, I yeah. am a sinner. Um, yeah. And I think we all uh, know on some level that popes are sinners too and they've yes. probably said so publicly but this <laughs> felt different and fresh yeah. and surprising why do you think that was because there was a huge reaction to it well the pope does wear white yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're trying to like you know i think that is destabilizing for some people <laughs> that's true <laughs> i i think taking your primary identity i think that's the language i used back then he, he's identifying not as the holy person which he is, of course, right, in, in so many respects. And we call him the Holy Father uh, as Catholics. And that is who he is, too. Uh, but I think in saying, but I'm also a sinner. I'm also someone who needs to constantly be called by Jesus and to respond to that call. I think that really connects him to us because, you know, many of us feel that way. He understands who I am or understands my sense of of who I am. Um, and in identifying that way, I felt, yeah, he, he gets it. We're all on this journey and we stumble along the way, but it's okay. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I think one of the reasons some people might have a hard time with that, and I don't know that they would frame it this way necessarily, but it's a little bit like when you first figure out that your like parents are flawed, yeah. you know, um, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't like, I, no, I want my, I want my 
priest. I want my church to be like, yeah. to have it all together, right? Yeah. And if the person in charge of all of that is the first thing he says about himself is that he's a sinner, then that's extremely destabilizing. And I, you know, like, even if you are like, don't say it out loud, I'm coming to you. Like, if you go to your doctor and your doctor's like, oh, I'm so, I'm so unhealthy right now. And you, you would be like, <laughs> See I him might smoking find a, in the parking lot. Yeah, I might find a new physician, right? <laughs> right, um, right. And so even if, you know, he is a sinner, some people might say like, hey, look, just keep that under wraps a little bit. Yeah. You know, when you're the Pope, you're the Pope. Don't do that. Lead with the holiness. Right. Um, <laughs> but Francis seem, doesn't care about that, it seems like. No. And, and I think one of the reasons is, of course, when it, it's a, I think it's a good analogy because you, you recognize some point as a young teenager or something, oh, my parents are flawed. They make mistakes. They don't always make the right choices. If my mother's listening, it, I, I I still haven't, fe- you have not revealed that yet to me. So don't worry. Okay. <laughs> if my mother is listening right now. So you're good, mom. But you realize it as a teenager, John. I, yeah, <laughs> a- absolutely. I, I, I did. And of course, what happens though, as you get older is you start to see them as whole and complete human beings. And you have a lot more compassion for them as that. And you realize things that you sort of judge them for, you're like falling into yourselves, right? But I do think it's true that, you know, by by sort of putting himself forward, I think it's a nice way to put it, Zach, as the sinner. It also is like, well, we, we want something. We want something we can trust. And I think, you know, trust in institutions is at an all-time low, at least in North America. People don't trust the church. People don't trust the government. (laughs) People don't trust a lot of institutions. I do think, though, that what Francis is saying is you got to go deeper uh, in terms of how and what you trust. And I think he's pointing us towards um, Jesus himself. Yeah, so we've focused on one part of that primary identity, which is being a sinner, but the Pope follows that up with um, a sinner who's saved by God's mercy. So I want to talk a little bit about the the mercy part of that statement. And one thing that really struck me about your piece is you quote Pope Francis, um, not in that interview, but later saying, Jesus shows sinners that he does not look at their past, at their social status, at external conventions, but rather he opens a future to them. And I guess what struck me is like, the. for me, mercy can feel very backward looking. It's like, oh, look at all the bad things I did in the past, but now it's all good. I've been forgiven. I hadn't really th- thought of it, thought of it as something that like then orients you to the future, um, yeah. which was a helpful f- framing for me because with Pope Francis, it's like, okay, he's focused on mercy. What does that mean going forward? <laughs> if we're yeah. everyone's just forgiven for past stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like in the calling of Matthew, yeah. it's not like there's like this discourse about all the stuff that Matthew has done, right? Yeah. It's very much centered around like what the next step in his life is. I agree, and and I think it's that sense of mercy that sees you for who you are, sees you for flaws in in Christian context, sins, but nevertheless loves you and knows that you can do better and, and there are better uh, choices to make. And so mercy is that just this, you know, radical outpouring of God's grace and God's love that says, keep going. Uh, and y- we can move forward and we can move forward together. Certainly within the church, I think that's the goal, right? That we move forward together. And it, it has been difficult for me to figure out in some ways why this 
call to mercy, which I do think is grounded in Jesus' own teaching, has has gained him so much animosity in some circles. And it, it, without question, that's the case. And I think sometimes what is difficult nationally, maybe the way you've put it, sort of puts a finger on it too, gives me some insight into that, that the reason people think of it as something in the past is I have been forgiven. I am now on the right path. Mercy is something other people need, not me. Instead mm-hmm. of this sort of this constant need to sort of refresh oneself and recognize wherever I might have stumbled, wherever I might have made a an error, I can still move forward and move forward in knowing that I'm loved. Yeah, it, it is different than this like, I don't know, like American self-help pep talk yeah. where it's like, oh, it's all right. You know, like you, you fell down, get back up, keep on going. Yep. It is a, it's much more <laughs> radical and concrete than that. It's it's like, I loved you then, I love you mm-hmm. now, I, lo- I will love you forever, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And maybe sometimes even not in spite of these sins, but because yeah. of them. And that's yeah. like the thing that's really very countercultural in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, but I do think the most common criticism you see is that, you know, m- most people would agree mercy is at the center of the gospel, but yeah. worry that in practice, such a laser focus on mercy can lead to sacrificing truth. Like you're yes. only forgiving people. You're never giving them that hard dose of <laughs> here's what the gospel tells you to do next. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is the one I've struggled with the most too. I, I'm not using, um, you know, language of destabilization uh, without some thought about it because you know you can't just be destabilized either right you want to feel that sense of security as well and i know that's where some of the criticism comes from francis and i know even big supporters of him like my friend massimo fagioli has said stop giving interviews <laughs> like just like we don't you know we don't need that many pope interviews where people are like parsing everything because you're not clear we don't need just instability we do need security and solidity But I think that mercy is something that doesn't run counter to the truth. I think it's a constant call to the truth. I really believe that. I mean, and that's where I think, you know, we have to include ourselves in this because when I include myself, I don't start out my day thinking, who can I hurt or what, what, you know, regulations and rules can I break? But I do at various points. And then it's not because I said to myself, I don't want truth, I just want mercy. Uh, it's because we all stumble. And I think it's recognizing that all of us, even those of us who are focused on more on the truth and on rules, and, and the reality is we have them, right, within the context of the church, a truth that we claim and rules that guide us. I think it's recognizing that we don't know the whole of someone's life. We don't know all of the things that they've suffered. Um, I worked for seven years in suicide prevention and worked with men who had been sexually abused as children. And you started to see what was under the surface of people's lives, that they weren't waking up saying, now I'm going to do something wrong, but that some of the events, and this is just one example, that they had gone through as children had shaped how they were responding to things in their adult lives. And it took a lot of work to get through it. And so when they stumbled, when they failed, like all of us do, there was a sense of unworthiness. And I think not a, not a sense of, I'd like to 
to break a bunch of laws or a bunch of rules, but I'm, maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe I'm just not good enough. And I think this is where mercy says, no, you are good enough. Pick yourself up or you will be picked up or will help pick you up and we can move forward together. So I, I think all of us need that constant reminder about the truth. I think that mercy and truth go together. If no one has ever seen Babette's Feast, that's the film to watch that will give you that sense of mercy and justice meet together. And Francis says, human beings focus too much on justice. It's God who's focused more on mercy. And I think that might even be in the piece. And I, yeah, I guess I would just add to that. Like, you don't seek mercy unless you realize that there's something you've fallen short of that is yeah. a truth or in our case like yeah. a person I do want to move on to uh, the next gospel passage that Pope Francis often focuses on which is the good Samaritan so so how do, how does that play into his papacy well first I want to give you your flowers yeah. because he doesn't reference it directly in this interview but you were like I think the good Samaritan is what's behind this and yeah. turns out obviously it, it turned out he turned out to write like an entire encyclical based on yeah. Basically, terrible. Right. So, so yeah. good on you, Dr. John Thank Martin. You. And by this, you that. mean this whole image of the church as a field hospital and people as, as yeah. wounded yes. sinners who need to be forgiven and yeah. loved. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I, I was pretty sure <laughs> because of that image and because of the field hospital. I, I think so many people know this parable, even who who are not Christians. Most of us don't know a lot of actual Samaritans. There still are Samaritans left uh, in Israel, but not a lot of them. Um, Many of us know Jews. We have friends who are Jewish. We have colleagues. But the setting of it with a priest and a Levite, someone beaten up at the side of the road, I think it just resonates with us even still today. And you can even plug in different characters, right? I had a colleague at University of St. Thomas, David Landry, who used to not have a Samaritan stop by, but a Muslim. And this was at the, you know after... Uh, 9-11, for instance, and the person who came to help the person on the side of the road, he said, put, put in your mind a Muslim, you know, at a height when there was a lot of Islamophobia. And I think that the parable really resonates about how we need to act and how we need to love our neighbor. It sort of enacts Jesus' teaching and enacts, actually, the Old Testament, love God, love your neighbor. And who's loving the neighbor? The one who loves the neighbor. And I, I will get in... Um, something about Paul here, the Apostle Paul, <laughs> because one of the things that Paul does talk about is uh, the whole law is fulfilled by loving your neighbor. And it always fascinated me that Paul, in two occasions, once in Galatians and once in Romans, does not actually cite love God, right? Which Jesus does, right? Drawing from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And I thought that's sort of fascinating, but I think the reason is it's easy to say you love God it's harder to actually just love your neighbor um, because neighbors are messy. They're troublesome. Sometimes they're loud and annoying. <laughs> and I think that's sort of where the rubber hits the road. And I think the Pope is telling us, this is how we need to behave. This is how we need to actually enact uh, our love of God. You know, it's funny. You mentioned that it's like a world famous parable and the people even outside of Christianity kind of know what it means. But I actually, I was thinking about that as you were talking, and I, I feel like it's kind of gotten watered down the more it's become sort of like just like this thing to that everybody knows where it's like, oh, it kind of just means like you help out strangers here yeah. and there, which I guess is like, 
at the heart of what's happening, right? Um, it is someone coming across someone they don't know and helping them. But there are a lot more details in that story that every time I read it, even you know today, I, I feel like I pick up on another insight. And one of the ones when I was reading Fratelli Tutti and was reminded of in your piece is that it's sort of like the religious uh, authority of the day that passes by um, and does not aid the person in need. And, you know, Francis puts um, Catholics um, and clergy in, in that place of the, you know, the, the holy and righteous one, yes. which is fascinating. Yeah, it is. And I think this is also why it's destabilizing for people, because those of us in positions of authority with respect to theology, I'm not a priest, but I have some role of authority in terms of, uh, you know, my training and my teaching and my writing. And we think of ourselves in those roles as having some authority, but that authority is not always enacted properly. And we need to be able to be called out. And that can be difficult, right? When you have given up a lot to be a part of a priesthood that really does care for people, a priesthood that for all of its flaws too, has offered its, you know, the priests have offered their lives for the care of others and the care of souls. And I, Francis doesn't pull any punches when it comes to saying, you know, you need to do better. I mean, and, and he says it, he says, there are atheists, you know, who enact Christian virtues and Christian loves to a greater degree than those people who are, um, you know, in the category of religious experts. Yeah, which might be like this thing that I, I guess a lot of people would go, well, duh. Like, but if you just like, you know, read the news or watch TV, you probably see that that's <laughs> yes. true. Yes. Want to get a little bit to why this focus of mercy? You're arguing that this has sort of been at the heart of the re uh, resistance to Pope Francis. That's right. Um, curious if you want to like elaborate on that a little bit more, because I think some people would say, no, that's not why we're opposed to Francis. Yes. I get pushback from that too. I got it at this at the conference we had. Um, got it certainly to this piece. <laughs> and if you look at some of the Twitter comments, I, I try not to read too many of them. Um, but if you look at some of those comments, uh, you can see that um, people are saying, no, it, it's it's him muddying the waters. Confusing, confusing people. It's confusing. And I don't know that this is something that really resonates with me because we either mean that we care for all and we love all or we don't. And I don't know that in loving all and caring for all, it means that we necessarily um, approve of everything that everyone does. You know, one of the criticisms of Francis is that, well, he comes down hard on his, you know, opponents or those who have criticized him harshly. I, I'm not sure if that's the case. Um, I think he's waited a long time with respect to someone like Cardinal Raymond Burke, for instance, that's my opinion. But there are times, of course, when decisions have to be made. I think that that's the case. I think that what people criticize is, okay, so if it's Cardinal Burke, why is he, a good man who's dedicated his life to the church, why is he being treated harshly by the Pope? But people who we think are really sinners are being treated well by the Pope. They're not being criticized. And I think it, it misses a point. I, I think the point is Cardinal Burke is a good man 
who's dedicated his life to the church. And nevertheless, still, you know, we all have to face our failings and our weaknesses, but he knows where he can find salvation within the church. But people outside of the church, I think it's a call to say you are welcome here, no matter what the issues are that you're facing, no matter what the issues are for which you're being criticized, you nevertheless have a home in the church as well. Yeah, I guess I don't want to defend Cardinal Burke's actions, but I do think American Catholics in particular um, often receive what the Pope is saying because, you know, he talks in kind of uh, broad, Broadway, freewheeling way, uh, yeah, yes, and about like <laughs> colloquial, and he and he doesn't seem to have <laughs> much time for people who are like overly pious or yeah. rule care about the rules. Um, yeah. and if and I think those Catholics feel like you're not making us feel so welcome in this church anymore. Um, And we love mercy. We think everyone can find mercy in the sacrament of confession, and we know we're sinners and we go to confession. Yeah. That might be the criticism that that probably resonates the most for me. I would go back to the Good Samaritan uh, parable, and I think that is, this is my reading of it, that that is motivating these criticisms, that in the same way that you have in the parable, a priest and a Levite walk by, I I do think his criticism is, yes, you are living out a holy life in many ways at a personal level, but are you drawing people in to the church? Are you drawing them in with this attitude? Are you there for them? And I think the reality is they don't feel welcome. And when you talk to a lot of people, I mean, it, it's not always the same issues, but, you know, in Canada, it has to do with the treatment of Indigenous persons, First Nations, Métis, Inuit people, and actual, you know, in some cases, crimes committed against them historically. Also, with respect to LGBTQ plus people and whether or not they're welcome. And I think a lot of people are saying, if you don't have time for these people then I don't have time for you. And and this, I'm just going on my own experience here and, and from what I've heard from people. And one of the other things that Pope Francis talks about a lot, and it took me a while to really um, sort of come to terms with it, was talking about people as sourpusses. You know, you can't mm-hmm. be sourpusses all the time. I'm not sure what the Italian or the Spanish is for <laughs> sourpuss, but he's like... I won't attempt can't. it. <laughs> but I think what he's saying is how can you live this... If this Christian life is giving you joy and peace, why, you know, if it makes you happy, why are you so sad? You know, <laughs> I believe that Cheryl Crow, not Pope Francis, but, uh, <laughs> or, 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 something in that range. But uh, yeah, why, why, why is this not bringing you joy? Where is that sort of resonance of joy in your life? I think that's a good place to wrap. John, thank you so much for your pieces in America over the years uh, and for taking <laughs> some you. time with us today. But before we let you go, we have one final question for you that we ask all our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, Cheryl Crow or not, <laughs> who would it be and why? And it, can, it really can be Cheryl Crow. Yeah, it could we'll be. take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could be my Uncle Ed. All right. Tell us about your Uncle Ed. Uncle Ed Hamaguchi. So uh, my dad's sister married Uncle Ed. He's Japanese, Japanese Canadian. He's just got this incredible Zen presence. 
He's gentle. Uh, he's very sweet. Has had a huge influence on both of my sons. One of them has now lived in Japan for ten years. The other one's done a master's degree in Japanese religion. Uncle Ed um, is a Christian, but he's also deeply imbued with, uh, you know, the Buddhism that was brought over from Japan when his family came a couple of generations ago. And he's just always kind, always gentle. His backyard has this massive koi pond he built. He's an engineer. Uh, bamboo. Uh, Grove, I guess that's what you call it. Uh, it's a real place of peace, and that's what he creates. All right. Uncle Ed. Saint, Saint Uncle, Uncle Ed. Ed. <laughs> All right. Again, the article is Pope Francis's focus on the Bible and mercy and why so many Catholics are uncomfortable with it. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. First, want to shout out a new Patreon supporter that came in over the holidays. A huge thank you to Roland Agromanis. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, Roland got access to our special mailbag episode over the holidays, um, which is only on Patreon. So uh, we got into a big discussion on parishes and the role of them. I got to flesh out my some would say anti-parish take a little bit more into what I'm actually arguing about. So if you're interested in that, you can join patreon.com slash America Media. And those people got access, early access, to our roadshow dates that are coming up this spring. Yeah, as Zach mentioned at the top of the show, we, we finally have nailed down the dates and locations for the first first few roadshows of the spring season. So we're just going to go through the dates and locations here, uh, but in the show notes we'll have more information about what you can expect if you attend one of these shows. So first, we're going to be in Madison, Wisconsin at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish. We're going to be there on Monday, January 22nd and Tuesday, January 23rd. Monday is a more casual event. There'll be more details on that to come, and then on Tuesday, January 23rd, we're going to be doing doing a live interview with the local bishop. That's right. And then we're going back to my alma mater on Thursday, January 25th. That's Loyola University, Chicago. Really excited about that one. Um, please email us if you want to if you want to come to that one. It, there, there are some capacity limitations. So shoot us an email at jesuitical at americamedia.org. But the uh, dates and locations specifically are in the show notes. And then in February, we're going to my hometown, Arlington, Virginia, at the Crystal City Marriott Hotel. So there we have an event in collaboration with the Georgetown Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life. Uh, so this event is on Wednesday, February 28th at the Crystal City Marriott Hotel. And we are very excited that we'll be talking to Cardinal Wilton Gregory. And then uh, we're going to the West Coast in March. So Monday, March 18th, we're going to be at Loyola Marymount University, uh, the other Loyola I will be there cheering for what? What is their mascot? The Lions? I think Lions. Sounds right. Please, I, I whatever the mascot. I think it's Lions. I will go from a Rambler to a Lion. Really excited to visit uh, California in March. So again, we're going to be there on Monday, March 18th at LMU. Please come out and visit us if if you can. If you are within a driving distance or walking distance to one of these spots, we'd love to meet you. We're so excited to uh, finally get out on the road, do some live events. We're going to be doing some interviews, talking about. Uh, spirituality and discernment should be a really good time overall. And as always, we're going to be doing it often over drinks. Yep. 
So check the show notes for more information. And if you did not hear your city listed in, in those uh, in those tour dates, uh, we would love to come to you if you have a parish or a university or uh, any sort of group that could host Jesuitical. We'd love to come. Just email us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. And for the events of this spring, make sure to check out these show notes. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week we're doing something a little bit different. We are welcoming back to the show O'Hare fellow Michael O'Brien. Welcome back. Hey, Ashley. Thanks for uh, having me back. It's so good to have you back. And so we are coming up to the deadline for applying to the O'Hare Fellowship. And so we wanted to give people an idea of, of what might lead someone to this place uh, in their spiritual lives, in their educational and professional lives, and then what it's like to work here at America. Yeah, so the O'Hare Fellowship is a year-long postgraduate fellowship where we have three fellows every year that come and live in live in New York City, uh, work with us here at America. And they one of the things they get to do is help on Jesuitical. So Mike, you've been doing that. Uh, all year long and then but there's all kinds of different things you do right like you're on several teams you're writing you're editing you're pitching stories i think it's a pretty sweet gig um you can feel free to rebut me if that's not, yeah not no true. it's it's been a it's been a really multifaceted experience uh because i think i definitely want to continue in the uh you know journalism media sphere for whatever comes next after america and it's it's been a doing a great job of preparing me for that so far yeah, so going back to your your time at Holy Cross, was there a moment when you really felt like you the you came into your own faith? You you were raised in this faith, but you you took ownership of it in a new way. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that that one interesting thing for me kind of like being a Catholic school lifer, so like from pre-K all the way to the time I graduated college, I've always been in a Catholic institution, I went to a Jesuit high school as well, a Jesuit university, so it's kind of like always been my identity to kind of like have my education shape my faith as well. So, I think like as a lot of people, like one of the most like spiritual experiences I ever had was the Kairos retreat that I went on at Xavier. Uh, I ended up doing uh, another retreat at Xavier my senior year, but by the time I got to college, I was actually a student athlete at Holy Cross. So I like really didn't have like as much time as I would have liked to like, you know, really take a break, you know, reflect on like my, my life at the moment. But I actually came down with an injury the winter going into my second semester of senior year. And f- coincidentally enough, there was a, a, a five day silent retreat that Holy Cross offered where you can kind of go and in a really beautiful space space about a half hour away from campus and it's modeled after the spiritual exercises and I figured you know when is uh, you know when's another opportunity that I'm going to be able to do something like this and so um, I was a little bit intimidated at first not gonna lie five days in complete silence is, is definitely a pretty daunting thing um, but it was it was a really great opportunity for me to look inward because I think the Kairos retreat in particular like I think you learn so much about yourself um, from what other people have to tell you the palancas the letters all those are super super encouraging things to, you know, be hearing from other people, but like, you don't really have that on, on a silent retreat. So you're really looking inwards. And so this was also around the time where, you know, I was starting to think about what I wanted to do after graduation. This is like your St. Ignatius moment. You uh, know, pretty much. Like, yeah. Because, you Ignatius, know, the, your you know gets Achilles the tendonitis and the cannonball to the leg. It's <laughs> yeah, pretty much basically the same, the same thing. thing. Yeah. So, one of the most incredible experiences that I had on that retreat was, you know, there was, there was a little bit of a lull because you can't always be having life-changing thoughts every second of the retreat. And I was just kind of looking for new reading materials. So I was looking around at, you know, what was available at the retreat center. And so I just- Only religious up, books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, but I picked up, I picked up a magazine. I, I didn't really know like what it was about. And sure enough, it was America. Ah. So the more I started reading it, I was like, wow, they actually do pretty amazing work here. And so when I got back from the retreat, I just, you know, Googled America and I saw that there was a postgraduate media fellowship opportunity. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of discerning, a very good Ignatian word there. Yeah. Um, and I figured, you know, 
that a place like so for example like i worked at a place like nbc at their 30 rock office like literally right down the street like before i started working in america and i was thinking about maybe like returning to a place like that after graduation but i kind of always figured like a place like 30 rock it's always going to be there but this was like a much more unique opportunity for me you know to like kind of really dive into media like immediately after graduation um and i think that you know i almost felt like i owed something to the jesuits after after they educated me so well and i had such a positive experience at xavier and holy cross so yeah that's a little short short summary as to how i ended up at uh, america and, and you know i think my faith played a pretty big part in that. the jesuits were hoping you would like sign up to be one but this is pretty good too <laughs> yeah hopefully this is uh, a good enough replacement for you know yeah. I, I was I, I did a i did a silent retreat my senior year of college too mm-hmm. um so I, I think the exact same time like in that period between first and second semester so right. super formative i you know if, uh you've never done one listeners like it's sounds really scary i remember being scared you said you were right. super scared but it is like uh i don't know it's really really important to do i think at some point in your life totally least. i think i think that you know in in today's day and age especially when there's so many distractions in our everyday life we're always so busy and and it it, it does seem like the silent part of it is kind of like showy but it's really not because when you're not able to talk with other people, you really do have to kind of talk to yourself in a lot of ways. And, and it, it kind of prompted me to think about things that I really never had before in my own life, my own spiritual journey. So I would highly recommend for anyone who's never done one before. Mm. I'm wondering how working here has affected your your relationship with God or your your faith life, your prayer life, because it's not always easy to work in, in Catholic media. You're, you're dealing with the conflict in the church, the bad news in the church so often. So I'm wondering how that's been for you. Yeah. yeah. And I really do think that the people here have, have you know, kind of largely influenced my relationship with God as, as a result. Like one of my uh, fellow fellows, if you want to put it. Um, Delaney, she wrote an absolutely incredible piece about, you know, kind of like why she chooses to stay in the Catholic Church amidst like so so much scandal, the sex abuse crisis, all, all of the, the, the problematic things that happened in the church and like kind of reading her words and, and you know, kind of like reading someone also like, you know, not only that works in America, but is my age as well. Like we, we, even though we went to different schools, we graduated, you know, in the same semester and everything. And so I think that America is an incredibly relationship based place, uh, which is maybe something that I wouldn't have gotten at a more like corporate institution or something like that. So I really do think that like, you know, Ignatius tells us to find God in all things, but um, I definitely think that um, that's kind of like actually being put into practice here with, you know, the people I work with in America. Man, it's so, so dumb in some ways. I, I <laughs> Like thinking about all the like different ways you in particular actually tried to market the O'Hare Fellowship, didn't mm-hmm. matter. None of it mattered. All it took was like picking up a magazine at a retreat yeah, house. Right. Like, so <laughs> just like, so marketing so dumb <laughs> in some ways, but I'm so glad that you found that magazine. And now I'm just like, triangulating the timeline a little bit here. Sure. I, I published a wine article right around then. Okay. <laughs> so that was, pr- so... It was like December 2022 is when yeah, I Yeah, so that would probably would have been in print in January 23. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Wow. Anyway, so I'll take full credit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so my efforts did nothing. It that's, was your wine article. That's yep, what you're getting at? <laughs> that's what I was getting at. Uh, Mike, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank and you. you've been able to spend... Uh, you still got half a year left. So. Yeah, so I, I was thinking about... I, I still have more time remaining in the fellowship than time has passed in the fellowship so far. So it's gone by really quickly, but I'm still super looking forward to spending the next six months here. Awesome. It's been great to have you here, Michael. And if you are a senior at a university or college and you would like to replace Michael, I'm sorry, (laughs) Uh, or if you know someone who's about to graduate who you think would be a great fit for this fellowship, you can apply at O'HareFellows.org and the deadline for submissions is February 1st. 
All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who's also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.